you all pay attention to that one particular line, the world is dying to know who you are. There's one reflection of that lyric that seems like, well, are they literally in the parking lot climbing over each other, leaving their cars running and the doors open, beating down the doors of our church saying, please share with us the news of who Jesus is? Is that what it means? Well, they will be if they knew exactly who he was. The other reflection of that lyric is this, people are dying to know who he is, meaning until we know fully who he is, everything that we are doing in the meantime is really dead works. There are things that cannot save, things that cannot deliver. The world is dying to know who he is. And so if they're not beating down the doors with their enthusiastic uh, reaches to pursue him, then we have to reach them if they're dying to know who he is. And this is why we want to talk today about the good news and the great call that we have on our lives to share it with others because they are indeed dying to know who he is. They just don't know quite yet what they are dying for. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and begin to scroll over to uh, or dial up or turn to whichever version of the Bible you have, uh, the book of Mark. And we are back in our second installment of our series entitled Good News. Uh, as you're getting there, I would also like to pray for us. Father, in the name of Jesus this morning, uh, we need you. We don't say that lightly. As we say those words very casually and easily, our need for you is multifold. We need you this morning to quiet our hearts, free from all of the distractions that are competing for our emotions and our intellect and our memories. Lord God, would you please press pause, press mute on our agendas, our duties and our tasks, the things that are screaming to us about how much they need to be addressed and satisfied immediately after we leave. Would you, Lord God, press pause on our impending lunch dates and social adventures, the email that needs to be sent before tomorrow morning so that their respective recipients will receive them in their inboxes. Lord God, would you quiet that basket of laundry, that table that needs to be dusted, that meal that needs to be prepared, that car that needs to be taken to the shop, that person that needs to be picked up from the airport. Lord God, all of those competing responsibilities and agendas, Lord God, would you please quiet them for us in this moment so that emotionally and intellectually we are fully available to you, that we can give you all of our attention. Lord God, would you also peel back the layers of fleshly resistance and sin, prejudices, things that we feel like we've already known or we already know, things that we feel like we've already got under control concerning the good news. Would you remove, Lord God, we at pride or any other little packages of sin that stand in the way of the full receipt of your word this morning? Would you, Lord God, chisel away at a calloused heart that has developed somewhat of a resistance to your truth? Would you, Lord God, soothe the hurting heart that is deeply bruised, sought after you, followed hard after you at some season, but right now feels like you have deeply let them down and they are very tender, Lord God. Would you reach into each and every one of our lives, find us at our particular places of need and address it ever so beautifully. Would you let there be a demonstration of the Holy Spirit that makes it obvious to each and every soul in the room that they have had an encounter with you, even me, oh God. 
Breathe fresh on us, Lord God, through the life of your word. Allow us to see you more completely, understand the gospel more clearly, to worship you more fully, and to serve you more dutifully. Increase our discernment of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, welcome to all of you, and uh, particularly any of you who may be your very first time with us. If you are a guest of Gospel Hope Church, we just kind of put your hand up. I'd love to just show you some love. There you are. Make sure... Would love to make sure you have uh, received a little uh, package that we have for you at the time that you came. And if you didn't, please stop by the Connect table and uh, make sure you receive that on your way out. If you've missed uh, a portion of the series, because this is the second installment, as I mentioned, you can feel free to go online and look at the first uh, portion of this series that was preached um, just last week by Pastor Ryan as we started out from here from the book of Mark. Uh, assuming that you are already there at Mark uh, chapter 1, we're going to be covering this morning verses 14 through 38, quite a stretch, so put on your seatbelts. And uh, we're going to begin our reading this morning with just uh, two verses. You ready? In verse 14, it says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Everything else that we talk about today is going to be in service to that larger theme, that the kingdom of God is at hand and that we need to repent and believe in the gospel. What exactly does that look like? September of 1990, I don't know if you remember where you were or if you were, but in September of 1990, I was a, uh, entering into just a month into my senior year of high school. I just turned uh, 17 years old and there was uh, big news that had just hit the city. We had just found out that the city of Atlanta would six years later in 1996 be hosting the Summer Olympic Games. It's big news. As a, um, you know, person who had been maybe driving in the city for just a little over a year, almost two years, as a 17-year-old, I could tell that it was big news because of the way that people were reacting to it. It would only be over time that I would understand just how big the news was. We lived um, uh, not far off of, or Wesley Chapel was our exit off of I-20 that we would exit to get to our home. And I remember exit, uh, Wesley Chapel was uh, number 36. Anybody remember when Wesley Chapel was exit 36? Now it's like, is it 72? Or, yeah, it's like 72 or something like that. And uh, why? Well, in response to the big news that the Olympics were coming, all of our exits were renumbered to match the number of miles that they were from the other borders. And so that's why Augusta is 198, because you are 198 miles from the other border, which is Anniston, Alabama, which is where Catherine is from. That's right. Roll tight. You could have moved a little bit closer to the interior, but you're still an Alabamian. That's all right. Anniston is just over the border. But, but, but nevertheless... But nevertheless, there were, there, but it wasn't just minor changes. Like, even the roads got wider. I mean, I-20 was literally just two lanes going in one direction from Augusta all the way into downtown until we started getting ready for the Olympics. This place changed greatly. It was commonplace for people to live as far out as Decatur and, 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 and Lithonia and drive every day to work in Alpharetta. They could do that with ease. 
You could go from Wesley Chapel and get into downtown in, in seven minutes if you hit it just right. This was your Atlanta prior to the coming of the Olympics. Again, at the age of 17, I didn't realize how big news it was. I didn't own a business. I didn't, have to, I didn't own a hotel. I didn't have to build a stadium. But I do remember as I started to hear people talk about this news and saying things like, we're going to be hosting the whole world. I'm like, well, where are they going to sit? Where are they going to drive? And there were other people who understood that, and they were busily making that happen. So in 1996, when I was 23 years old, I saw it. All of the great spaces that were, that were mowed down and big structures that were built up and how all of our things were chaining. Like, you know, I'm in really into highways. I remember this. You know those little signs that you see before you get off at an exit? It's, so it's not just the exit ramp or the city, but it says there's going to also be a Bojangles, a Starbucks, a Chick-fil-A, a Waffle House, right, and a Denny's. That, that didn't happen before the Olympics. We put those signs up so that the world, when they navigated our city, would know where they could get off to refresh themselves. That's why we have those, so you can know what hotel and gas station was there. That was all in preparation, part of the change that our city underwent in response to the big news. And so, and, and so in 1990, what happened was somebody said, behold, Atlanta, the Olympics are at hand. What are you going to do? And people who believed that news immediately got to turning and churning and doing things to make this area ready for it. And I believe that that's the same energy that Jesus is preaching with, but of even greater magnitude when he says, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. And so for people who believed it, they had to repent and do something different about their current state so that they could accommodate this great work that God was getting ready to do. And so I believe that in much the same way that the city responded to this big news that the Olympics was coming, that people who really understand the gospel understand that it's not just news, but that it's good news. And when you understand just how good the news is, it produces in our lives great change. And today as we walk through the book of Mark and just these few, a handful of verses that I've outlined, I want to take a look at four great changes that took place in the lives of, of Jesus' first audience and that should be taking place in my life as well, along with yours, if you really believe that the gospel is good news. Now, you see this kind of language passed around the Bible all the time. The kingdom of God is at hand. What is it? Is it like the Holy Olympic Games? Like, what's, what's going on? Well, the kingdom of God, just to give you a working definition, is this. It is the rule and reign of God made visible through the practical lives of his people. The kingdom of God, for today's working definition, is the active rule and reign of God made visible through the practical lives of his people. What do I mean? For people who have received Jesus Christ as king, who have responded to not just the news of the church, but the good news of the gospel. For people who receive Jesus as king, they begin to, on a practical daily basis, make decisions that make it clear that they are operating under another authority. 
that they are not operating under their own authority, they are not operating under just local authorities, but they are operating under another authority. And when the lives of God's people change practically in that way, it produces cultural curiosity. And it causes people to want to know about the hope that is within you. So when 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, you should sanctify the Lord God in your heart and be ready to give an answer or a defense for the hope or the truth that is within you. That's what he's talking about. When you sanctify the Lord Jesus in your heart, it is provocative and produces curiosity in the culture. Some of your Bibles in 1 Peter um, chapter 3, verse 15 say, honor the Lord God. I don't think that's hardcore enough. I think the King James has got it right. Sanctify. Let me explain why. When I honor somebody, it's like when I see a military person get on the airplane and I go, thank you for your service. I'm honoring you. But to sanctify, if you've ever been to Arlington, you ever seen that tomb for the unnamed soldier? They got a group of elite guys that patrol that thing 24 hours a day. That is their job. And you man, woman, child, snail, roach, rat, you cannot cross the boundary that those soldiers have set aside. They will get you. There are no games being played. Why? Because they have sanctified that thing. That's what it means to sanctify the Lord in your heart. He owns a space in your life, or he owns your life, or he, he operates in your heart with a type of vigilance that makes other people say, what in the world is going on over there? And so... God's people, people who have yielded their lives to the king, live in a way that illustrate that the kingdom of God, his rule and reign is at hand through the practical way we live and make daily decisions in every category of life. So if that's the kingdom of God, then what is the gospel of that kingdom? The gospel is us telling the story of how Jesus Christ has become the king of that kingdom. And the way that he has become the king is through the completed work on the cross. So we live life differently. People see that we're operating on another authority. They come to us with curiosity, and we begin to tell them about the king under whose rule we operate. And we begin to tell them about the work on the cross that has solicited our heart to him and why we have sanctified him in our hearts, and this is why we walk the way we do. And so you begin to create gospel opportunity to share the good news because you are living under a different authority. And so when the gospel becomes good news, it produces great change. I urge you today, don't just let the gospel be the, the topic of the stuff that we often talk about from pulpits in churches. Don't let the gospel roll off of your conscience like I let the announcement that the city of Atlanta was going to be hosting the Olympics. I was like, sounds like it's a big deal. And I just went right on back to doing what I did. It wasn't great news to me. It wasn't good news to me. It was just news. It was frequent news. It was regular news. It was annoying news. But it wasn't good news to me yet. And so I beg you, ask the Lord to make the gospel good news to you this morning so that it will produce great change in your life. Well, what then are these changes that I'm proposing that the Bible is proposing should happen in our lives? Let's take a look. In John chapter, no, 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 in Matthew chapter uh, 1, verses 16 uh, through 20, read this with me or, or hear this with me. 
Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, and they were mending their nets and immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with their hired servants and followed him. One of the first great changes that I believe that God is calling for in our lives is this, when the gospel has grabbed the whole of my life and has become good news, it changes my view of what I do. It changes my view of what I do for a living. Notice that God, Jesus Christ, walks up onto the, to these men who are fishing, doing their daily occupation, and says, follow me, and they immediately left. And they said, well, what are we going to do, Jesus? I will make you fishers of men. I will teach you how to take your current talent and use it for the kingdom. The first thing that the gospel does when it becomes good news in my life is it produces great change in the way that I view my career, in the way that I view my things that I do. Now, I don't want anybody to go to work unless God is telling you to, to turn in your notice and then come in and apply with Gospel Hope Church because you want to be a full-time professional Christian. That's not what this text is calling all of us to do. It might be calling some, but not all. But what I do believe it's calling all of us to do is, Lord, how does my current occupation fit under the auspices of the kingdom? How do I view what I currently do as being for you? This is a question that I believe the gospel should call all of us to ask every day. Whether you are a grandmother and all you do is can jam and sell it at the end of the driveway, or you sit your children on your knee and share with them the gospel each day, or you're running a small daycare out of your basement, or if you're sitting in some pristine office park calling shots for multinational billion-dollar corporations and creating strategy, somewhere in there, God wants to know, how can you take what you currently do and use it for you, Lord. How can I do it? When you've been gripped by the gospel, that's what will happen. It changes how I view what I do. Another question that I believe that the gospel is doing is asking this, where am I slow to move towards you, Lord? Did you notice that on multiple accounts that when Jesus walked up into these men's lives, they immediately put down their nets and followed him? Ask yourself the question, Lord, where am I slow to do what you are calling me to do? The third thing I think the scriptures would ask is what excuse am I using not to follow you? Where do we get this from, from the scriptures? Notice in the Bible that Mark wanted us to know that when he called the second set of disciples, it says they were in there and they left their dad, Zebedee, with the servants. They, they walked off from the fishing business and followed Jesus immediately. I would ask you, when, the, when God grips you, when, when you hear the news of the kingdom, when the, when, the, when the gospel is working and pushing down the borders in your life and you're giving all of you to him, what is it that has become an excuse for not following him fully? What has been the excuse? Is it a relationship? It is an occupation? What is causing you to be slow? And how is it that you use what you currently do for him? This should be a prayer when you get out of the bed, as you're putting on your makeup, as you get in the shower, when you get in the car. If you don't already know, when you put your key in the office door or when you dial into Zoom, whatever you do, whatever office engagement looks like, when you get ready to make sure that the, that the daycare cots are turned down for the kids that are coming to stay at your basement, when the grandchildren are coming over, or whatever you do, when you're warming up, 
up the jam to put it into fresh jars. God, what does it look like for me to take what I do and do it for you? This ought to be a regular preoccupation for gospel people. Why? Because everything we do has kingdom value. Everything we do has potential kingdom value. And if we are kingdom people, how do we render it that way? Now remember, all of this is in service to the idea that if I am doing everything that I do as a citizen of the kingdom, the way that I do life creates curiosity for the culture because we recognize at a minimum we want to create opportunities to share why we belong to the king. So this is why I want to do this. Not, not just because I want to religify my job. I'm trying to live differently so that I can create curiosity and a, and a platform for the good news no matter what places I live. Look at verses 21 through 28. In verses 21 through 28, this is so interesting. Um, all of it's interesting, but here it is. And they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was preaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out and he said, have, what have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him and said, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed. So they questioned amongst themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. And he commands even unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region. The first thing God wants to change in me when the gospel grabs me is it wants to change my view of what I do. And the second thing it wants to change at, a, at least is it changes my view of who Jesus is. It changes my view of who Jesus is. You understand that all the people who are experiencing Jesus, their view of who Jesus is, is being radically changed. I believe that he still wants to do that in me and you. Each of us claim to know Christ. If you are a believer, each of us have come to know Christ through a particular avenue. We came to know him as a deliverer from some egregious sin that was gripping our life, maybe an addiction. We came to know him as a lifter of our head because we received joy at a time that we were so depressed that we were even suicidal. We, we, we came to know him. We came to know him through some avenue that he became, made us deeply aware of our sin. We came to know him within the, the pews of a Sunday school class. Each of of us had a particular lane and avenue or way that we came to know Christ through his love, through his mercy, through his grace. Uh, and, and no matter how we came to know him, there is still so much more. And so even the townspeople who knew him as a carpenter, who knew him as Mary's baby, who knew him as Joseph's son, who knew him as John's cousin, who knew him as a guy who was a decent teacher and preacher, God is always through the gospel trying to expand, working to expand our view of who Jesus is. And that view will continue to expand until we meet him face to face. And so we're on a nonstop adventure of discovering more of the greatness and the authority of God. Why is this? Look at what the townspeople said when they heard Jesus preach. This man teaches with a kind of authority that is completely different from that of the scribes. Well, what authority is that? Well, the word of God has become flesh. In other words, doctrine has become human. Of course you've never heard preaching like that. This isn't someone just reading the book and then trying to draw you into the text. This is the book itself reading you. 
That's what they're feeling. Doctrine has become human. Now, remember what the Bible says about itself, its own testimony. The Word of God is good for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness so that it will be thoroughly furnished for every good work. So what does the doctrine that has become human do? It stands up in the middle of the synagogue and somebody says something and it gets reproved. Because even though the demon has the right information, you're the Holy One of God, it doesn't have the right orientation. Follow me carefully. You can be well apprised of all kinds of good Christian doctrine, but is it transformative? The demons spoke truth, but they were not transformed. It is possible to hear great messages and none of them transform. It is possible. Why? It's possible because our hearts have yet to yield to it. Our heads have received it, but our hearts have not bowed to it. Doctrine has become human. That's why he has so much authority when he preaches. Divinity has become human, but something else awesome has happened. The most popular man in the world has become the most powerful man in these people's lives. Did you know, do you know, ask your Alexa, ask your Siri, if you're so bold, even Google it on your phones right now. What is the most broadly sold book in the world? Now, in order to car make a secular carve-out because people don't like Jesus, it'll tell you that it's Don Quixote is the broadest-selling individual novel, Don Quixote, 500 million. Do you know how many copies the Bible has sold? Five billion. Ten times. Ten times the greatest individual volume that the world has on record. The Bible has sold ten times that amount. No, now, now, who's the star of the book? Who's the main character of the Bible? Jesus. So if the Bible is the most popular book in the world, it stands to reason that Jesus is the most popular man in the world. But there is a distinct difference between him being the most popular man in the world and him being the most powerful man in my personal life. And that's what the gospel does. The gospel takes, the, takes this God who is broad and, 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 and generic in many ways, and it takes everything that I know about God, and Jesus says, well, let me make that personal. Everything that you know about God broadly and in general, I come to make it personal to you. Powerful scene, a demon telling the truth about who Jesus is. Couldn't help himself but reflexively reverence him, but not in a redeeming way. This is such a th key thing to see. A demon can have the right confession but not yet be saved? How is it possible? Because just because you know the truth doesn't mean that you surrender to the truth and that the truth is transformed. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, therefore, this is after Jesus' completed work on the cross, therefore God has highly exalted him, who is that Jesus, and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at that name, every knee, how many knees? Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. In other words, the name of Jesus is such that every knee, even demonic knees and even demonic tongues, just as they're doing in the book of Mark, will confess that he's Lord. Man, you're the Holy One of God. But even that confession won't result in their salvation because the confession is not, it's just academic. It's not out of a heart of surrender. And that's what the good news calls us to do, is to surrender to Christ as king, not just acknowledging him as a cool guy who comes through town, preaches great messages with some authority that we've never seen before. And so, there's more. Oh, there's more. Look at verses 29 through 34. In verses 29 through 34, Jesus keeps the train moving. Now, now follow the scene. Jesus is preaching, building up huge crowds. He's in the synagogue showing that power, silencing demons. And then it says in verse 29, and immediately 
He left the synagogue and he entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. And Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came, and he took her by the hand, and he lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve him. And the evening at sundown, they brought all to him. Now, the reason they waited till sundown, because they wanted to wait till the Sabbath is over, if they're carrying sick folks, right? They didn't want to violate the Sabbath. And so at the evening at sundown, they brought people who were sick and oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick and of various diseases, and he cast out many demons, and he would not permit demons to speak because they knew who he was. Now, Jesus was intentionally suppressing his popularity so it would not impede the progress of the gospel. He wanted to be able to move freely from city to city because the gospel was the main thing, not his own personal popularity. He wasn't trying to have people push him up on a pedestal. It wasn't time for him to be worshipped just yet. He wanted people to hear his message and not be mesmerized by his works. But follow me carefully. The third thing that the gospel does is it challenges my view of sovereignty. So first, it changes my view of what I do. Second, it changes my view of Jesus. But third, it challenges my view of sovereignty. Why? Sovereignty is that doctrine that helps us to understand that Jesus Christ is king over everything and answers to no one. Now, looking at the ministry of Jesus through the lens of Mark, follow me carefully now. This is the nerd fest. You have to have one each week with me right? The book of Mark is written to the Romans. Each one of the gospels has a target audience. Book of Matthew written to the Jews, therefore it is chock full of references from the Old Testament. The book of Luke shows him as the quintessential perfect man or the second Adam. That was, that was very special appreciation for the Greeks who, 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 who were steeped in sophistication. Uh, John was written to the church to demonstrate to the church at large that he was God in the flesh, right? That's how he begins his gospel that way. Mark wants to reveal Jesus Christ as the suffering servant, now listen to this. The Romans, who are now the lone, they are the world's leading power. They are the, they are, they, they are the reigning world power, conquering lands. They know something about authority. They know something about sovereignty. They know something about serving a king and an emperor. And here comes this Jesus who says he's a king, but yet he's willing to leave the synagogue on the big stage preaching great messages and walk into the living room and touch somebody who got fever. How does the sovereign come to serve? We've never seen authority like that. This is why Jesus would be fascinating to the Romans, and this is why Mark engineers his gospel in this way. He goes from the synagogue to Simon's house. He goes from fighting demons to, to healing fever. He's preaching by day, but yet he doesn't tire. He's out here reaching by night. He's at home, and rather than taking a nap, Jesus says, bring the folks. Bring them even to the house where I'm staying. I'm willing to, I'm willing to work even now. He's not like some emperor who closes himself up in his chambers and say, tell the people to come back tomorrow. The Romans have never seen sovereignty like this. They've never seen this kind of authority. Even we haven't seen it. Oh, Lord, our Lord. This is Psalm 8. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, you have ordained strength. But then skip down to verse 3. When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which are you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you are careful about him? Who's the biggest? My, my kids asked me the other day, who was the biggest celebrities I've ever met? And so I read off the list, Dominique Wilkins, Jane Fonda, Ted Turner. I can explain all of that later. Um, uh, Fred Hammond, uh, all of these different people. 
And I'll tell you, not neither one of them would come see about my mother-in-law if she had fever. I, I, I've, I've, I've been in the room, worked work with, and been on a first-name basis with multimillionaires. Not a single one of them would come see about my mother with the fever. But Jesus will. The same one who created all the stars and can call each one of them by name walks into Simon Peter's living room and heals fever. I believe the Bible wanted you to see that. That's why it wrote it in there. He could have just steamrolled past that into another big preaching campaign in all the towns, and we would have been equally as impressed. But the Bible wanted us to see that Jesus can come from the big stage and walk into the living rooms. And I believe that's what the gospel of Jesus Christ does. That's why it's good news that the God who governs the universe is interested in occupying a space in these little bitty wicked hearts. It challenges my view of sovereignty, my view of authority. It helps me to understand that God is mighty to save, but at the same time eager to serve. It helps me to see that the conquering king has incredible compassion, or as penned by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 6, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement of our peace, but in his, by his wounds we are healed, and we like sheep, all we like sheep have gone astray and have turned away every one of us to his own, and the Lord is laid on has laid on him the, the iniquities of all of us. Oh, my goodness. This is a picture of the sovereign of the universe who is also the Savior. What a beautiful view. And it is the gospel that allows us to see Jesus in that beautiful and magnificent way. He is the quintessential Roman oxymoron. How does a person with that much authority have this much compassion? And so, verse 31 I just want to roll back over it because this is just the, this is the fourth change. And he came and he took her by the hand and lifted her up and her fever left and she began to serve him. It charges me to serve. When the gospel comes into my life, when the gospel becomes good news, it produces great change. And one of the great changes is it compels me to serve. It compels me to serve. It, 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 the first order of business is, Jesus, you have changed me. How do I serve you? That's an awesome view. It's an awesome view of the scriptures. As a matter of fact, I, I, you know, Simon Peter's mother was told about Jesus, or, or Jesus was told about her. Simon Peter's mother was touched by Jesus. And then that same grace that showed up in her living room has now taught her heart to serve. I believe that Simon Peter's mother-in-law is a prototype for every single one of us in this room who has been effectively gripped by the good news. I know she's not the headliner, but she is the bottom line. The headline of the text is that Jesus Christ has come to town, the kingdom of God is at hand. But the bottom line is when that gospel, that good news that he's talking about reaches you, it compels you and I to serve. And one of the first orders of business to serve is how do we bend the knee? How do I bow the heart? And then, yes, Lord, I'm willing to yield my hands and do whatever you want me to do. There's no way that you could tell me that if the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords came off the big stage and sat next to your bed and said, here you are, my sister, and lifted you up, or my brother, that you wouldn't be compelled to serve. I'm pretty sure her first act of service is, well, Lord, let me just put a pot of peas on for you. I got some cabbage and some fish we had yesterday. I don't have a microwave because we're not in that time frame yet, but I could go out and warm it up on a fire for you if you would. Whatever I can do, whatever is within my reach becomes at the disposal of the Lord when the gospel has gripped me. Do you feel that? 
When the gospel has gripped you, that's what it'll do. It'll compel you to serve in these incredible ways. And so again, Jesus is the headline, but Simon Peter's mother-in-law, she is the bottom line. This is the point where each and every one of us shows up in the text. That's you. That's me. Now, I don't know what kind of lift you need. I don't know what your fever is. I don't know what your particular deficiency is. I don't know what your particular pinch point of your character. I don't know what your calling card is. I don't know what's happening in your life that makes Jesus necessary for you. But I know at a minimum, each one of us, we, we are sinners. Each one of us are sinners. And if you haven't known him in that way, let that be the first order of business. Jesus Christ, I want to yield my heart to you. I am a sinner. How do I bow to you? How can you become my king? And Jesus says this. Here's what the gospel says. I'll be your king, but let me first be your savior. I'm, I'm more, I, I desire to be your king, but we got some work to do. And you don't have work to do. I got the work to do. I will be your king, but can I first be your savior? Can I first show you that I died for you on the cross in your place, and it should have been you, and now I have been raised from the dead with victory over sin, death, and the devil, and I did it for you. And if you will give your life to me, not only will you experience the life-changing power of the gospel, but you will also experience the life-changing hope in future. Because if I have lordship over sin, death, and the devil, I give you, you become a beneficiary of that because you will be raised up with me. This is what the good news is. The good news is that there is nothing in your life. It could be as slight as a twisted ankle. God cares. It could be as massive as 13 consecutive busted marriages, grand larceny, murder. I don't care how small or big it is. The good news is that God says, I got power over that and I got a solution for it in your character. I got hope for you. You think you're hopeless. You think you're the biggest mess. You think you're the, you're the stuff of the Jerry Springer show or whatever the most recent madness is in our culture today. And Jesus says, you ain't too messed up. You don't have a life that is so screwed up that I'm not willing to come off the big stage into your living room and touch you by the hand. This is the good news. You don't have a mess that's big enough and you don't have an issue that's obscure enough that he doesn't care about. And all he's asking is, will you agree with the Father, not just intellectually, but with, with every fiber of your being, will you agree that I have died on the cross for you? I'll transform you like never before, and nothing that you have been through will ever again have authority over you because I was raised from the dead to have victory over sin, death, and the devil. Nothing that has ever ailed you will have authority over you if you are in Christ and he is your king. That's the good news. And if you already know that, would you be so kind as to share it? Hmm? Would you be so kind as to share that good news with other people within your context? You are fishing somewhere. And the Lord is saying, man, will you just take your little same street business? And the next time you get a client that asks you to him address, would you kind of pray for a way to share with them? Are you, are you a driver's ed instructor? Next time you're going down the highway with a little nervous teenager, can't figure out what her turn signals are, would you ask for a way to share gospel? Are you a school teacher? Will you, will you pray in your classroom before the students come in, even if you're not in a Christian school? On PTA night, when you're getting ready to encounter with some of the, the, some of the wildest parents you've ever seen in your life, would you, would, you, would you model grace 
And would you be able to, to share good news? Look for ways to share the good news. Are you the ultimate book sh big shot in the room? Making so much money you're embarrassed to even let anybody know. Are you that guy? Are you the, are you the real, are you that lady? Are you the big deal on Wall Street? Will you ask God for a way to illustrate the good news through you? He wants to use that career. He graced you to get it. You got a degree from Yale. You got a degree from Princeton. You got a degree from Harvard, UCLA. You got, you got degrees that get you in audiences that, that low country people like me could never ever meet or garner their respect. And you got this audience. How would you, can you leverage that audience for the kingdom? That's what God is asking. How do you take what you do and use it? Lord, how can I use it for you? Are you well past your working years? You're retired and all you do is play bingo. Will you share the gospel? Will you bring the good news down to the VFW or wherever y'all play it at? Will you share it over the fence while you're watering your flowers? Will you look for ways to share the gospel no matter what your station is? Man, I, I got like 15 more companies in my mind, but I think it's gonna make the message too long. Oh yeah, put Chipotle asking if it's beans or rice or if I want a bowl. Are you down to party city? No, I'm just kidding. Let me, let's, let's get in here for real. <laughs> Man, I, I, can I just pray for you? Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask as you just kind of sweep through the room and your inventory in the hearts and minds of your people, you know the address for each and every person. You know our particular disposition and where we are, whether we know you or whether we're not. I want to pray first and foremost for the person that does not know you asking themselves, Lord, do I really know you? Lord God, would you please, would you please reach into that heart and have that person to become cleanly aware that they need to know you as king? They've heard about you well preached. They've grown up under the auspices of good religious teaching. They know the, the truth, but has the truth transformed because you have become their Lord? Lord God, would you reach into that life and make that person know that they need to, they need to now yield to that truth and be transformed by it? Lord God, is there a person out there that knows you? You know where they are. They know you, but they don't believe that they can be used by you because of a damaged past. Lord God, would you rescue that guilty conscience? Would you pull that person forward and let them know that you absolutely want to use them, whether their occupation is hanging off of the back of a sanitation truck or whether or not they're rescuing lives in America's most panicked emergency rooms. Lord God, will you show them that you want to use them? Lord God, would you reach into the lives of your people and call them forward? This I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Man, if you're here today and one of these calls impacted you, you recognize that you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I would like to have a conversation um, I would love to have a conversation with you. Um, we also got members of our prayer team in here. If you just put your hand up, we've got members of our prayer team. Uh, you see these hands that are going up? These people would gladly, they would gladly just kind of talk to you about the gospel and what it means uh, to, to render, surrender one's life to Jesus. If you don't know him as Lord and Savior, and again, you feel more comfortable talking to one of them or to me, uh, please have that conversation. If you're here and you are saying, man, I... Um, um, I just, I feel like I'm, I'm more compelled to, to use what I do for, for the kingdom. 
man, you don't need any special laying on of hands by a somebody like me. I'm nobody. Would you just immediately obey that conviction? Don't let any grass grow under the feet of your obedience. Just immediately move toward God. As soon as you get out in that parking lot today, will you just say, Lord, show me how to use what I do for you, period. Put your nets down and go to the, and go off. Let's worship him.